0: Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. Paul Shoemaker, the founding president of Social Venture Partners, the world's largest philanthropic network of its kind, with offices in 40 cities throughout the world. He recently wrote a book called Rebuilders, Leaders We Need for the Next Decade Ahead. Paul has spent a good part of his career finding keys to bring about social change. And Paul will be with us in about 15 minutes. But first up is best selling author Frances Mays. She recently completed a lavishly illustrated book called Always Italy. The book is published by National Geographic and features all 20 regions of Italy, the best places to stay, eat, and tour. Now, why 20 regions of Italy? I actually didn't even know there were. Twenty regions, I guess, like states or separate countries. But what she submits is that each region in Italy, all these twenty regions, are vastly different. They have their own wine, food, customs, etc. So again, it's like twenty countries within a country. That's what I would uh, gather from that. Miss Mays has written bestsellers, which includes "Under the Tuscan Sun," that was made into a movie starring Diane Lane, and this movie loosely depicted. Francis May's sudden move from the Bay Area to a villa near Cortona, Italy, which is the place I visited in about 2006. My first question, you've written numerous books on Italy, including Under the Tuscan Sun. Now, what is different, or what were you trying to accomplish in this book?
1: Always, Italy was a huge research project for me. I went to all 20 regions of Italy, and I guess that's what's different in my other books. I've... Into a lot of Italy. Like my last book was See You in the Piazza. It was new places to discover in Italy. But this book, Always Italy, is each region of Italy. I'd traveled a lot, but much to my surprise, the places I hadn't been and had kind of put off going turned out to have some of the most surprising and immense pleasures that I have ever had traveling in Italy. What um, would be
0: some of those places?
1: Oh, I had been uh, to Sicily. Before, but I had never been to um, way south in Calabria, Basilicata, Molise, Abruzzo. I really didn't know the south as well, and I so fell in love with it. I think because I grew up in Georgia, where it's hot, I have an affinity for uh, hot climate. But I just couldn't believe that I had never been to these places before. Once I got there, they offer in. Uh, In addition to all the great cultural things about the North and the Central Italy, all the art, they they have their great artists and architects, too. But what amazed me the most was the architecture, the Baroque architecture. There's so much of it in the South because this huge earthquake shook everything down in the 18th century and had to be rebuilt in the Baroque style of the time. So that, particularly in uh, southern uh, Sicily and in Pulia, those uh, surprising buildings were something I never uh, had been that keyed into before. So much outdoor activity. Usually when you think of going to Italy, you think of all the culture, all the art, uh, history. But there's so much to do outside other than beaches and skiing, which Italy, of course, is known for. But uh, my co-author and I really researched a lot of the hiking trails in Abruzzo and Molise, the little hidden towns that you can hike from one to the other, even these small-scale little trains you can take, so many uh, opportunities for cycling. It was an eye-opener to me that there was a whole world out there of outdoor life that Italy is up there with any other country that, you know, you might want to go to for exploring the outdoors. Food is always a surprise because 20 regions of Italy, each one is unique. And because of the history of Italy, regions were cut off from each other. People didn't travel from place to place historically in Italy. If you were in the papal states, you had to get a passport to leave your locale. So the result of that is these places stayed themselves. They had their own dialects, their own artists, their own foods, their own wines. And I think that is why Italy is the most varied country in the world.
0: You know, we're in the middle of the pandemic. And I think uh, we all wish it was further along of getting back to normal. But it looks like we still have a ways to go. People still want to travel. But in the back of their minds, we're all nervous about traveling because of, you know, the virus and things. Are there places, let's say, in Italy that you would say, well, these are places that you could go to, not assuring 100 percent, but they'd be safer maybe from COVID, more isolated if that's on people's minds?
1: Well, yes, you can look at a map of Italy and see where COVID is. In some regions, it's not, uh, you know, very strong at all. In my town, Cortona, I was there in uh October, November, and the first part of December, we didn't have a single case in our town. There were cases in Tuscany, but uh, in our town, they never uh, never took hold. People still um, were very, very observant of all the rules, and um, they were quite stringent, quite strict. But right now, Americans aren't allowed in Italy. Americans aren't really allowed anywhere right now so we just have to sit tight until enough people get vaccinated and hopefully there'll be a, a vaccination passport and we'll be able to travel again i was able to go because i have a house there if you if you own property you can do what's called return to domicile so that's how i was able to go
0: um you also mentioned yeah. a place that you called a really hot spot i mean literally in terms of a new place that you wanted to mention is called Puglia.
1: Puglia, yes. old name Apulia, but it's known as Puglia now. It was a poor country. It's the heel of the boot. So water, water everywhere, beautiful beaches, turquoise waters. It was settled centuries ago by the Greeks. So there are a lot of these perched hill towns overlooking the sea that look like white sugar cubes. And you think you're in Greece there for a moment. And indeed, in the provinces, uh, outer towns in some places in Puglia, there's still Greek words in the dialect, so that ancient heritage is still somewhat alive by various marauders that they built to live in these uh, masserie these houses, fortified farmhouses. So many of those fortified farmhouses have become great places to stay. They're like oases in the country and everything's in proximity to the sea. And it's a wonderful place to combine with maybe if you've never been going to Rome, Venice, Florence, you'd have to see those places. I love Milano, Torino, you know, the cities going to explore the great cities of Italy. But then if you possibly can, when travel, leave some time for the countryside, because to me that's where the heartbeat of Italy is felt most strongly is the people still making their mozzarella, the people still gathering the grains to make this golden bread in Puglia. Um, Such a close-to-the-land experience. Um, I just love that area.
0: That's great. It makes me really want to go. and. I wish we had more time. We have a hard deadline because I know you have a number of interviews to do. So I got about three minutes left. But just want to let you know, if I had more time, I talk about this. I was in Italy and uh, spent some time there in Cantona, actually. And uh, but one thing I oh. wanted to mention, because again we were almost out of time, is you know I started out going to St. Peter's, the uh, Basilica there, and seeing it, and just blew me away. I thought I'd seen it, but I really haven't. When you looked at it. And magazines and and that's the whole thing that comes to you when you visit italy but i had been kind of let's say traveled out in the sense i've seen a lot of um, duomos and a lot of structures and i was getting towards the end of the trip and we went to florence and saw the duomo there and i remember coming around a corner and it just absolutely floored me looking at this structure
1: yes it's amazing stunning. structure this wonderful book about it, Brunelleschi's Dome, because when they started to build this church, they had forgotten how to build domes. It had fallen out. It's how knowledge can, you can't imagine that it could happen, but it can disappear. They had forgotten how to build domes and this book, Brunelleschi's Dome, uh, talks about all the ways they tried to reinvent the dome. It's a fascinating book and that church, its it's such a confection it's like a big wedding cake it's all white and pink and pale green and just you can just walk around it over and over even if you have been in a million churches you get to that one and it stops you in your tracks
0: Mm, i I agree absolutely agree it certainly did to me uh anything else like in the book you want to close out with about who would be for and and who should read this
1: I think it's while we're dreaming of travel, I hope it takes you there and leads to places that you uh, underline and turn the edge of page down on and say, I've got to go there, I've got to go there. There's a lot about uh, music and uh, film and books, so possibly it can lead you into other directions while you're in your armchair dreaming.
0: The book is called Always Italy, and as Francis talked about, it covers the 20 regions in Italy. Now, in the interest of full transparency, I have not personally read the book, but I have viewed it on Amazon, and it looks like a really beautiful book, and one thing that did capture my eye is that it's reviewed very, very well. I mean, a lot of people gave it like four and a half, five stars, so I like how she ended the interview by saying, we can always dream because that's what we're doing right now, and Hopefully, sooner than later, we will all have the opportunity to travel and to visit that great country of Italy once again, or for the first time. I just want to make it clear to you all that I am not paid any promotional fees for like this interview or any other interview that I have on this show. It's strictly based on what I hope is of interest to you, and hopefully I'm hitting the mark.
1: You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word.
0: As I mentioned at the top of the show, We have Paul Shoemaker, founding president of Social Venture Partners International, with us. He stepped down five years ago as president of SVP Seattle, but his desire to bring about social change has never waned. He recently completed a book called Rebuilders, Leaders We Need for the Decade Ahead. Now, Paul, as we look forward, what do you think must happen to bring about meaningful social change that maybe we weren't looking at 20 to 30 years ago, but need to do now.
2: I think the degree to which we know that big problems now are going to take cross-sector solutions. And I don't mean just public and nonprofit. I mean all three sectors. We sort of know that intellectually, but I don't know that we fully, I don't think we've sort of fully embraced it if you will operationally and managerially, so we need one of the characteristics I point to in the book, Paul, is what I call cross-sector fluency. What I am trying to convey with that is not just somebody that was a private sector leader and did a little bit of nonprofit work, or a you know a public sector person that you know did some volunteer work. I mean people that are truly fluent <clears throat> across all three sectors. And there's not a lot of them yet. And I think we need a hell of a lot more of them. Look at climate. It may well be the private sector that leads us. And that was, that's kind of unexpected. You look at racial equity, um, the private sector is going to have an important role. They can have a significant role in it. And there's probably, I know there's not enough people in the private sector that are, I think, sort of fluent about how these social issues work. And there's not enough folks in the nonprofit and public sector that sort of know how to really truly embrace the private sector. We're, we've danced around this. We're sort of doing it transactionally. Um, If I had to give you someone that you and I both know that I think is, that is a pretty good example of it right now is Brad Smith over at Microsoft. He is a guy that literally when he's talking, he can talk about the private sector, the nonprofit, the public sector. He doesn't skip a beat. And the nature of the work that he does is very, so we need a lot more people like him that I that are not just sort of episodically transactionally, but are truly fluent, truly cross sector native in how they do their work.
0: Very interesting. I couldn't agree more. I think uh, when you look at the private and the public sector divisions right now, Seattle is the poster child for that. For example, the city council. We have yeah. you know Jesus, the, yeah. the government over here saying th- yep. things entirely differently as. They're at war with the larger businesses in Seattle. And I think you raised a very good point that if people had more coherency with both sides and were involved in each other's silos for a while, they may appreciate more of what the other side is doing, if lack of a better term. But we don't seem yep. to have that now. You pointed out in the book that there, we live in our silos.
2: I, I think people occasionally, like I said, they sort of like jump out of the silo into another one, and then they jump back to the, their their original one. Again, they're not. it doesn't sort of like this native, fluent transfer of conversations and work. Um, if you look at the sort of classic example around here, of course, Amazon. I know several people inside Amazon that said, You know, in the last couple of years, did anybody from the city council ever come and talk to you or approach you? The answer is no. And that doesn't mean it shouldn't, it needs to flow both directions. It does. But I just, I don't know how you can be a city council person. And I think Amazon does some things that aren't that real cool. I agree with that. But how you would sort of like make these decisions and and think about the future of your city and just really not be in a conversation with the, by far the biggest real estate holders in town. How you do that I just that just that floors me. Um and I have a hard time I mean I you know, I think Bezos is as hard edged and uh, capitalistic as anybody is. I know a hell of a lot of people in the organization, including their new CEO, that are very civically minded and I think approached in the right way, um, you know, who knows? I think somehow this played out could have turned out very differently.
0: We can hold two thoughts in our head at one time and I think I agree with you totally. Um, You know, Amazon, certainly there's there's aspects of Amazon I don't care for, but I read one of the mayoral candidates in Seattle now is saying, I'm for small business. Well, you know, Amazon has created a lot of small businesses in the Seattle area. Look at the face of the city and how it's changed. All the restaurants that opened up and the apartments and everything else that people, flower shops, you know, that have really taken hold during that time.
2: I think we were going the same direction, which is, if you don't want to get with them, let's see what it's like when you have less of them and see how that works out for us. The tax base will suffer, et cetera, et cetera. I
0: just, I don't know. This is, we've both grown up in the city. There were different times. You know, politics is not a no-contact sport. It's never been. However, nope. there yeah. were times where you would go across the aisle and you'd make decisions. And I talked yeah. to Howard S. Wright last week, and I really looked yeah. at how the city has <laughs> absolutely the last 50 years or so, where it was and where it is now. It's a magnificent transformation, and I'm not sure, when we talked earlier about Voices of Experience, that a lot of people who moved to the city in the 80s and 90s, and even the 2000s, who are in the decision-making capacity now, really appreciate where this city was before. I mean, we grew up with no sports, I mean, in the 60s, and no pro sports, and all that. We saw this city just have this spirit of how it really came to what it is and it's a shame seeing where it is now, but we know no we question. can come back and then that's kind of the point of your yep. book.
2: No question. I think there's a certain kind of leadership it will take in a place like Seattle to come back. It's absolutely doable. It's really freaking hard. And I think the the right kinds of people are out there and we need to sort of amplify them and we need to build the muscle in some other people so we've got the sort of the right kind of leader. This is a crazy decade ahead. And we're going to need a particular kind of leader that's got some particular skills. And if we focus on that and we build those muscles, then we can we can recover from all this.
0: Let's talk about that. Uh, some of your examples there. The one that jumped out at me is authenticity.
2: That to me is a great example. And when I, in the book, I call it 24-7 authenticity. The point is, in A, the sort of media news slash fake news, unquote, a leader that's going to be, straightforward and honest is going to be incredibly um, valuable. Leaders are going to have to be even more transparent that they maybe want to be <laughs> or are comfortable being, because I don't think you have any choice. And I, you know, for better or for worse, I think your margin for error on things like transparency and honesty, they're, they're pretty small. And I just think leaders have to know that. And so you need to show up in a particular way and just know that your default setting is, you got to be honest, and you may take hits for that, and you may lose for that, but over time, you'll gain the credibility.
0: You know, one of the things that uh, anybody knows me for a length of time knows uh, how I admired President John F. Kennedy. And one of the reasons yeah. I did is goes to the fact of just what you were talking about. And very early on in his administration, he uh, approved the Bay of Pigs invasion. He approved that, but Eisenhower's the one who that was really planned under, and it was like, hey, we're all ready to go, can we go? And he said basically, well, I guess you can. Or he he approved it. Now it was a fiasco, as we all know in history. But what John F. Kennedy did about leadership and authenticity, he came out and said, I blew it. And I made a big mistake here, and um, it's on me. He could have said, and I think if we live in this day and age now, well, that was Eisenhower's fault, Uh, that was my predecessor, I just stepped into this. And what's interesting, just to your point, during that time, his approval ratings were all always pretty good. However, yeah. they shot up after that. Did they really? Yes. Huh. He was more popular than ever after that fiasco, and I think one of the reasons is he was transparent, and he accepted responsibility. And also, his power grew immensely because he took the uh-huh. hit, and the military yeah. had a new respect for him because he could have said, oh, it was a military blunder, but said, yeah, I'm he commander in chief. Better, it's on me, and that was one of the yep. biggest reasons I admired him.
1: Yeah,
2: no, that's a guy. I I obviously know Bay of Pigs, but I don't. I didn't know that sort of part of the story. That's fascinating. You also yep. mentioned
0: something about the complexity capacity. What is that?
2: We know that we live in a complex world. We we all know that. What I would suggest is that the decade we're going into is I think it's more complex than anything we've dealt with maybe since the 1940s, and maybe it goes further back than that, but in mini-historian way, I can't think of a decade more complex than, than we've dealt with for you know 75 years. We've got to have leaders that can not only take it in, but also message it back out. I have a subsection in that part of the book, which I call You Better Have Women in the Room. Um, I have been in a few rooms where <clears throat> a room full of men, older men, will not be able to deal with a complex issue, and I've been in many situations where I just think women are flat-out better at complexity. It's not just about processing complexity. It's also about how you communicate with it. You know, I need people of color in the room. I just, I, If I'm going to deal with complex issues, you need a range of people in the room. And for me, it sort of starts with women.
0: Some of these issues that we talk about, that this is the right thing to do, it's also smart. If you're in a room yes. and you're in a private business or you're in, let's say, government or you're in a nonprofit, To have a diverse group of people, you're trying to market, basically, no matter what it is. It's just common sense.
2: No question. No, we're actually quite a ways past nice to do. This is now must-have stuff, and it's must-have stuff because it works better.
0: I think we talked a brief time ago about the Seattle minimum wage at $15. Yeah. And Ed Murray, you know, I'm saying certainly I'm not a huge fan of his, but... I think he did one of the best processes ever put together in the Seattle process, which we get dinged for. But he put together a committee of about 25 people, chaired by a pro business, Howard S. Wright, and then someone from the labor, David Roth, plus all the stakeholders beneath. And he said, basically, come up with something in 60 days or I'm going to do it. They did it.
2: No, I agree totally. That actually, that's a great example. That is a very good one. Not just the traits and the attributes, but the mindset of being a rebuilder. I think is a really important one to take into the 2020s.
0: The book is called Rebuilders, Leaders We Need for the Decade Ahead by Paul Shoemaker. The book will be available on March the 16th, 2021. This is Paul's second book. His first book, Taking Charge of Change, How Rebuilders Solve Hard Problems. If you would like to purchase either book, visit Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, or a number of other book ordering websites.
1: You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. If you have questions, comments, or topics that you would like to suggest for future shows, call Paul at 206-714-8154. That's 206-714-8154.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Francis Mays and Paul Shoemaker for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Any comments about what you heard on the show today or any previous shows, or if you have any input you'd like to give as far as topics you would like to have covered, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Now lately, if you've been listening to the show, you've known that I've been covering local issues, Seattle and the state of Washington, more thoroughly than in the past. And that's because of my deep concern about what's happening in the city of Seattle. I interviewed Norm Rice, a former mayor of Seattle in the 1990s. Upcoming, I'm very pleased to announce, I'm going to be talking to former mayor Greg Nichols about what he sees, what's going on right now, what he sees as the future of Seattle. So I'm very pleased to have these high caliber people with the show. I also interviewed former King TV reporter Julie Blacklow, and she's going to be talking about, from her point of view, covering news in Seattle in the 1970s, 80s, and into the 90s, as opposed to what it would be like doing that today. It's far different. I've had Stu Elway, the pollster Stu Elway on this show many times. And uh, there's just a huge disconnect between what the citizens of Seattle are believing and what we should be doing and what the Seattle City Council is doing and what the mayor has been doing for that matter. So I want to air those topics out. We have a huge election coming up in November, a new mayor, some new city council seats. I'm getting the sense, I raised this with Howard S. Wright a few weeks ago. He was co-chair of the effort to get the $15 minimum wage implemented, and it was successful. And so he's weighing in about his concern about the city, rightfully so. I want to spend time doing this going forward. If you want to weigh in on it, you can call 425-653-1166 and leave your comments, 425-653-1166. Voices of Experience, we talk to people with experience in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, entertainment, with an emphasis on entrepreneurship. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. Thanks for listening. Quote of the week, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. Oscar Wilde. And finally, if I need more of an explanation why I think experience is so important, take a look at what happened over the weekend in Denver where United Airlines flight took off, engine didn't do so well kind of blew up but the pilot who had a lot of experience was able to bring that plane in safely back to Denver nobody injured and nobody died now that is experience at its best